Hello and welcome to the South Carolina Lead. I'm your host, Gavin Jackson, and this episode was recorded on June 17th, 2022 from my friend Maya T. Prabhu's house here in the greater Atlanta suburbs. You might remember Maya, her days at the Post and Courier with me at the State House, and she's down here now working at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and I'm in town for the Emmys this weekend, so spend a little time with my girl and also taping from one of her bedrooms. That's why it's roomy. <laughs> but I think you guys might forgive me. Hmm? Hmm? But just want you to know that some of the information in this podcast may have changed by the time you've heard it. Not the roominess, of course. Now, we are taping this podcast on the anniversary of the Mother Emanuel Amy Church shooting, which happened seven years ago in Charleston. The horrific hate crime shook our state and the country and led to the removal of the Confederate battle flag from Statehouse grounds. We remember those who died that day. Cynthia Graham Hurd, Susie Jackson, Ethel Lee Lance, DePayne Middleton Doctor, Clemente Pinckney, Tawanza Sanders, Daniel L. Simmons, Sharonda Coleman Singleton, and Myra Thompson. This episode features a recap of the top congressional, statewide, and state House of Representatives races from Tuesday night, and we have commentary from several friends of the pod. You'll have to wait and find out who they are. Now, this is going to be another entire election pod episode, but don't worry. On Tuesday, we will be back to our regular selves with a state budget update, as well as more on inflation. You guys have been missing that and the latest health news. But of course, we want to hear your stories. That's why we have a voicemail box set up. 803-563-7169. Leave us your name, a message, where you're calling from, and just what's going on in your world. Maybe a little reaction to the election results. Hmm? Hmm? We would love to hear your thoughts on who got elected and who didn't and how at 803-563-7169. Now for the latest in South Carolina. Currently, the spread of COVID-19 is low, according to county-level data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. For the week ending June 11th, there were 10,035 new COVID-19 cases. That's a 10% week-over-week increase. And there were also five deaths, which is a decrease week-over-week. There are 283 South Carolinians hospitalized with COVID-19, 32 are in intensive care, and 11 are in ventilators. Ventilator use is up 120% week-over-week. And currently, 55% of eligible South Carolinians are fully vaccinated. It was a busy week in the world of South Carolina politics. You know what I mean? Busy past couple of days, if you know what I mean. If you've been keeping up with my schedule, Tuesday was primary day, and there were some surprises in several different races. Let's start by looking at the top congressional Republican primaries that we were following. To do this, we've enlisted friend of the pod, AP reporter Meg Kennard, to recap the action in the 7th Congressional District and the 1st Congressional District. Meg was chatting with me on This Week in South Carolina, and we opened up talking about the 7th District, which stretches from the PD to the Grand Strand down to Georgetown County. Here's Meg. Going into this race, I think there was kind of a presumption that there would be a runoff on the Republican side. Tom Rice had half a dozen GOP challengers, and when you do the math, it just seemed like it might not be possible for one of them to break over that 50% mark. But State Representative Russell Fry really has been on the ground running his campaign against Rice for almost a year now, which is not something that you really see a lot of times, especially in a primary. 
um, and here in South Carolina, we had a lot of members that didn't have any opposition at all at the GOP ballot box, but Tom Rice had plenty. And so going into Tuesday, there was just kind of a thought that we'd be seeing a runoff here in two mm-hmm. weeks in the seventh, that somebody would have gotten close to Tom Rice. They'd be kind of right there at the top. And then maybe in two weeks would be another decision. But that's absolutely not what ended up happening. Of course, Russell Fry's campaign had been saying for weeks that they really felt confident in his reelect in his election. Tom Rice's folks had said the same thing about his reelect. But on Tuesday night, we saw Russell Fry get above 50 percent, actually to 51 percent, with Tom Rice at just under 25. So clearly there, the voters in the 7th have shown that they're ready for a change, and they see Russell Fry as the change they want to represent them on the Republican side of things. And Meg, that was really just you know a referendum on Tom Rice, just one vote. I mean, look at a 10-year career in Congress representing the 7th Congressional District, uh, voting along party lines, voting with Trump. Uh, most of the time, all the time. So it's fascinating to see that they were really just not going to let him slide when it came to that impeachment vote, especially when you look at his, uh, you know, former president's favorability numbers in that district. That's right. The 7th District, all districts in South Carolina are different, but the 7th District is clearly the one that we look at. Um, GOP Chairman Drew McKissick told me yesterday it's most like the Trump model of what they see there on the ground in the 7th for the Republican Party organization. All of the candidates opposing Tom Rice ran on this impeachment vote. All of them said that was the reason why voters should choose to sit him down in South Carolina rather than send him back to Washington. And that message clearly resonated. And Meg, uh, Russell Fry is not the most Trumpian, I would say, out of that entire field. You know, he's been in the state house since 2015. He's the House Majority Whip. Uh, he has some establishment bent to him in a way. But it was it more of the fact that he was someone that just wasn't Tom Rice, and also, obviously uh, Donald Trump endorsed him. I think you hit on it right there. One, he wasn't Tom Rice. Clearly, Russell Fry is somebody who is well-known here in Columbia among legislators. He does represent his party in a majority whip situation in the state house. So he's not an outsider. He's not a fringe candidate. He does have a lot of ties to the establishment, but he's not Tom Rice. And he also did have the backing of former President Donald Trump, which is something that does resonate and identify with voters in that district where Donald Trump won very handily both times that he was on the ballot in the general election. Russell Fry had a good campaign. He ran it well. He had a lot of ads that in his own uh, admission were full of a lot of dad jokes and zingers, but they made Fry very relatable to people. And, And that was always something that Tom Rice said that he represented, that he was a very relatable person to a lot of these voters. But Russell Fry, to his own credit, he used a lot of those things in his toolbox to make his best argument to voters, and they rewarded him for it. From one outright win to another, we also discussed the fireworks in the 1st Congressional District, which includes most of Charleston, Berkeley, Dorchester, and Beaufort counties. Freshman Congresswoman Nancy Mace beat former President Donald Trump's pick, former State Representative Katie Arrington, outright with 53% to 45%. Here's Meg. As we talked about, the 7th District is one that is a little bit more identifiable in terms of having perhaps more voters who would represent Donald Trump's side of things, who would side with him. In the 1st District, though, we have a lot of different people. That district has changed political hands twice in as many cycles. And so there are some people who always like to portray it as more purple, more willing to change depending on identifying with certain candidates and maybe just voting on issues more than personalities. Mm -hmm. We definitely had two big personalities, though, in the first district race with Congresswoman Nancy Mace and former State Representative Katie Arrington. 
A lot of the issues, though, are things on which they agree. They both supported completion of the border wall, one of Donald Trump's signature policies when he was in office. And, you know, when I talk to voters, when I hear from them, they're like, I don't see a whole lot of differences on the issues between these two. But for some people, they identified more with the person that the former president had endorsed, Katie Arrington. On the other side, though, I hear from just as many people who like what Nancy Mace has done in Washington, that she's been willing to talk to Democrats. She's been willing to go in bipartisan ways across the aisle and actually get measures through Congress. And so for those voters, clearly they're dealing with a lot of different factors, but it ended up with a victory for Nancy Mace by about eight points, which is exactly where she had been pinpointing it in our conversations leading into Tuesday. But uh, Meg, when we look at that, you know, Mace was very critical of the former president, especially after January 6th. She had just gotten sworn into Congress days before. Uh, what's the difference there? Is it just because she did not vote to impeach the president? She was just highly critical uh, that led to her being able to navigate this primary better than Rice? That certainly has something to do with it. And what you'll hear from voters is even if they did like Donald Trump and did support him in his own campaigns, they could kind of understand where somebody might disagree with the role that he played in January 6th in the Capitol violence. And so even someone who would self-identify as a Trump supporter, and even if they planned on maybe voting for him again, they could see where she was coming from in terms of what she said related to his relationship to everything that happened that day. Clearly, also, she didn't support impeachment. Who knows what role that could have played if she had been on the Tom Rice side of that vote. But all in all, even for people who might have supported Donald Trump and might think that he is the candidate they would want, they're not necessarily going to go down the further ballot and support anybody that he just kind of checks off in, in his column. And of course, there's a runoff for the Democratic Senate race for who will face off against Tim Scott this November. The three-way race yielded three candidates each polling in the low 30s, with Catherine Fleming Bruce and State Representative Crystal Matthews heading into a runoff on June 28th. They will face off against the most popular elected official in the state this November, who has a war chest of some $24 million. Now let's continue on statewide races, including the Superintendent of Education, the Democratic gubernatorial primary, and some big statehouse surprises. To do that, I spoke with another friend of the pod, Jeffrey Collins, also of the Associated Press. Jeffrey covers the state house and government, and we started off by looking at the six-way Republican Superintendent of Education primary, which advanced Kathy Manis and Ellen Weaver into a runoff to replace outgoing Superintendent Molly Spearman. So in the, on the Republican side, the runoff will be between the uh, Ellen Weaver and Kathy Manis. Kathy Manis has been a longtime education advocate, and uh, Ellen Weaver was Education Oversight Committee chairwoman for a while. So, um, But what that race has kind of come down to is most of the Republican establishment, your Republican political leaders and everything, have fallen on the side of Ellen Weaver, whereas Kathy Manis has put herself in position of being a teacher advocate, an educator advocate, somebody that has worked in schools or worked with schools for decades and knows it from that side of the fence. So it'll be a very interesting runoff. You know, uh, Manus won with 30% of the vote. She did pretty well, not, uh, you know, had a significant lead over Weaver, but it seems like in that race, all of the other candidates, and I believe there were about a half dozen other candidates, will probably fall into Weaver's camp because mm. that's the side that they kind of go on is that, you know, the we need to uh, you know, watch out for critical race theory in schools. We need to uh, be uh, more cognizant of what and more in control of what gets taught, that kind of thing. So I have a feeling there those folks are going to fall in line with Weaver. We can see if, if 
if if uh, Kathy Manis can improve her lead and get some more support. Yeah, especially since Kathy Manis, we saw get the support of the superintendent of education right now, Molly Spearman, who's retiring. Yes. And then, of course, Ellen Weaver with his curveballs still doesn't have a master's degree, which is a requirement to be state superintendent of education. Uh, but it's it's expected that she should have one by election day, apparently. We'll see. Yeah. Um, you know, with the stories about the, uh, the Post and Courier didn't come out with the stories about the education requirement until after filing. So mm -hmm. that sent everything scrambling. And so uh, Ellen Weaver has to get a master's degree from when she started in early April by November. Now, there is some question. This has never been there's no law in South Carolina that says exactly what has to happen if a candidate doesn't have the qualifications. Mm -hmm. So we may end up in a court fight. There may be I don't you know, it's not exactly sure what the deadline is where she has to get the master's degree. You know, is it, is it November on the election day? Is it when she would be sworn into office in January? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of uh, swirling legal questions, too. Yeah, the State Election Commission, I think, says uh, the certification language has a meets or will meet clause. So so probably like you're saying, we're going to see some fun legal fights come November. <laughs> if, if she wins. Now, yes, if, she, if, if, if she loses the runoff, then that mm -hmm. becomes a, a moot question because Kathy Maness does have an advanced mm -hmm. degree. Lisa Ellis, who founded the grassroots organization SC for Ed, won the Democratic nomination outright from Gary Burgess and State Representative Jerry Govan. Obviously, the big Democratic race on the ticket was the gubernatorial race between frontrunners, former 1st Congressional District Congressman Joe Cunningham and State Senator Mia McLeod. Cunningham won 56% to McLeod's 31%. Here's Jeffrey explaining the race. Uh, you know, Joe Cunningham ran uh, what people would consider a traditional Democratic race, raising money, putting, you know, if you get enough, put ads on television, mm -hmm. go to big events. You know, uh, make sure you're making good relationships with reporters and newspapers and television stations and things like that. The McLeod camp, they ran a little less traditional, more social media based, more smaller group kind of campaign. And in the end, I mean, you know, the results are the results. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, there's also a difference in their campaign styles. I mean, both of them campaigned against Henry McMaster. They really didn't go after each other. But. Cunningham was more of a, you know, here's what I'm thinking. Here's my youthfulness. I have, you know, I'm I'm 35 years younger than Henry McMaster. Whereas Mia McLeod kind of pointed out that she would, she was the first black woman to run for governor and obviously would be the first African-American governor we had in the state. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she, and that was kind of her was, you know, I can, and, you know, I, I have she still has her campaign ideas. One of them was a fifteen dollar minimum wage, but there was that little disconnect too between the two of them. And ultimately, I mean, Cunningham I think got fifty six, fifty seven percent of the mm -hmm. vote for an outright win in a five way primary. That's an impressive result. Yeah, and it was interesting. Uh, you know, you mentioned that fifteen dollar minimum wage. That was something she was really trying to ding him on. Uh, not only on the campaign trail, but we saw during the debate as well. You know, something he a vote he took in Congress when he was up there for two years. Uh, so it's interesting to see that that was a big issue, but something that's been having a lot of pushback here on the trail as well. But it's, she kept referring to him as, you know, Republican light, this more moderate approach. And, you know, I think that's an interesting comparison when you look at just how hard it is for a Democrat to win in this state. And, and you really can't be all the way to the left or even too progressive in many ways if you're going to even try and make a dent uh, in winning, especially when we're talking about people when there's margins of 10, you know, plus percent come the general election. Yeah, I think two elections, maybe three at the most since Jim Hodges won, the Democrats have been within 10 percentage points. I mean, McLeod does have a point. I mean, to, I mean, there is uh, I mean, think about the, the Democratic nominees since Hodges. You know, they were all 
very similar legislative based white men. Mm -hmm. And and they tended to, as you said, have moderate positions that are hoping to bring in some Republicans to the fold. And Joe Cunningham is like that. Now, there is some key differences. I mean, Joe Cunningham supports legalizing marijuana and sports gambling and some issues that might not that might be a little bit uh, sketchy or a little bit mm, too Republican. Yeah. Voters. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, um, you know, in Joe's case, I think one of the more interesting things in Joe Cunningham's case will be abortion. Mm -hmm. And he's hinted at it a couple of times because the South Carolina General Assembly is not quite two thirds Republican. And if they were to pass an abortion bill with Joe Cunningham as a Democratic governor, he could veto it. And there's not enough Republicans solely to override that veto. I suspect Mm -hmm. that's going to be one message he hammers home during this campaign. And there were some big state house race upsets as well, particularly among Republicans who had some 37 primary challenges. Jeffrey says the biggest surprise was the ousting of long-serving education committee chairwoman Rita Allison of Spartanburg County. The the big surprise was uh, you know the the chairwoman of the education committee Rita Allison lost her uh, bid for uh, re-election in the Republican primary. I mean she's been uh, I think 28 years total in the state house. She had a stint of about a decade in the last century, I think. And then she, and you know, she had another 14 years, I think since 2008 in her current stint. And she's a, she's a chairwoman of one of the most important house committees. She'd been there a long time. She was well liked in the house as well. So that, that was a, a big surprise. Uh, Brian White, who's a former ways and means committee chairman before he was taken off that post by a Jay Lucas, former Speaker Jay Lucas, he lost his race. He'd been in there since 2000. So those are probably the two biggest surprises. There were a a few more Republicans that got knocked off, too. And it seemed like the challenge for most of them were people that said they weren't conservative enough or that they weren't passing the kind of conservative legislation that some people that are on the farthest side of the right side of the spectrum want. With a lot of partisan infighting, the we're not DC vibe lawmakers love to extol is becoming, oh, seems like less and less true. Now, I spoke about this movement with lawmakers running candidates against each other over votes on superfluous amendments that will in turn be used in attack ads and mailers in primaries like we just saw. Winthrop University political science professor Scott Huffman gave his take on this activity during our election night coverage. I think you're right that it seems surprising that you have, uh, you know, candidates, uh, incumbents who are extremely conservative, suddenly being challenged from even further right. And I think that says a lot about the passion that we're seeing in local politics. Uh, you know, the the Trump folks and the folks who look at January 6th, you know, as something other than insurrection, uh, have become very passionate. And we see movements across America, things like Christian nationalism, Mm -hmm. and within the Republican Party, Christian nationalism has driven so many of these new ideas. And somebody can be an incredibly faithful Republican, but if they are seen as not hitting the proper notes on one or two of those, you know, ideological, uh, you know, test marks, then all of a sudden they're going to be threatened. Now, how serious of a threat that is, that's completely different. You have to remember that social media seems to create an echo chamber. And a lot of these folks who are running against incumbents feel that they have a lot more support than they really do. They have a lot of friends giving them likes and thumbs ups or whatever you get on various social media things. And they are speaking to people who are like-minded with them. And so when they are 
talking about a conservative incumbent and saying they're not conservative enough. The only voices they're hearing back are ones that are echoing them. So the the nature of social media, the nationalization of politics, and the strong ideologies that we're seeing that are becoming sort of the litmus test of what a quote real Republican is, mm -hmm. that's what I think is driving what otherwise would be an incumbent coasting and not even having a challenger. And in more D.C. fashion, several long-shot losing Republican candidates are now challenging the results of the primary. Just a preview of what's to come, folks. And on the way out of this huge media election section, our first election with early voting is officially in the books. 100,450 voters cast ballots from May 31st through June 10th statewide. Now that is just a fraction of the total who voted in the primary. Overall, 564,000 South Carolinians voted. For comparison, the 2018 midterm primaries brought out 620,000 voters. And the 2020 primaries? Well, they had more than 750,000 voters. Currently, there are 3.3 million registered voters in the state, and overall primary participation has never been higher than about 27%. And this year was right there at 17% participation. Yikes. And also noting that about 14,000 folks have returned absentee ballots so far. Welcome to the wind down section, our little break from the news. We talk about life during the pandemic, and of course we want to hear your stories as well. I asked you at the top what your reaction is to Tuesday's primary election results. A lot of surprises. I want to see if you are as stunned as the rest of us. And you can share that with us at 803-563-7169. Or talk to us about gas prices that aren't going down anytime soon and how you're coping. Leave us your name, a message, where you're calling from, and more at 803-563-7169. And now, AT, uh, yes, I am roomy right now. I apologize again. <laughs> Down here visiting my I, good friend Maya T. Prabhu. Yeah, she's. We can give her honorary friend of the pod status. Very right? much. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um. But I. I just like. I. I can't see you right now. We're really. We're really doing this down and dirty right now. Mm -hmm. So I want you to describe to the listeners exactly your setup right now. Okay. I'm sitting on the bed, <laughs> and mm -hmm. I have a towel draped over me. <laughs> and I'm trying to hopefully uh, hope that that will m muffle some of the echo in here, but I don't know if it's working. <laughs> so yeah, just working from the working from home, working from the bedroom here. And so you are in a Atlanta right yes. now. Exactly why, right? So you're you're getting an, you're being awarded, right? Lauded. We hope even. so. We all uh, we got <laughs> nominated for uh, this week in South Carolina episode on infrastructure. You might remember. So we've been nominated. The Emmys, the regional Emmys, are tomorrow in Buckhead. And we are just down here early, getting the vibe out there, hoping that we win. Because oh, yeah. it's I know it's just Putting an honor to be nominated, but oh yeah, um, honor to be nominated with such illustrious other people, right? Yes. Well, yeah, we're and we're facing off against um, an episode of Lawmakers by Georgia Public Broadcasting, our top, mm. our nemesis. <laughs> so Try, challenge them all to arm wrestles or push up contests. Precisely. And, I mean. That should probably win you the award because I know how yoked you are. Yeah. Well, it should. It should. <laughs> um, but yeah, I got down here early because I'm going to wrap this up, go check in, just kind of chill out because it's been, like I said, a very long week debate, you know, this time last last week. And then we had that two and a half hour live show on election night, which was mm -hmm. a blast. Uh, if you haven't checked it out, check it out. I, I heard from some folks that I even pulled them away from a basketball game 
Very mm. The incredible. finals, I've, they ended last night. Yes, Gavin. The professional I've, basketball finals ended last night. Well, on Tuesday night, there was some game going on. and I There was uh, still a game. A yeah, coworker it was, was like, game of the I didn't even watch the game. I was so enthralled. I was like, my God, I've never heard that before. So very It excited. was action-packed. Yeah, it really was. Uh, so, election uh, night, not the game. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, yeah, so I did uh, just get down here Thursday. But I did leave AT right before all hell broke loose, it sounds like, back in Columbia. Yes. Correct. Yeah. The reason we can't see each other right now is because the internet in my house uh, has gone out because of mm. a massive storm that I bet a lot of listeners also experienced yesterday. Mm -hmm. It came in hard and heavy. Yikes. It was pretty crazy. Like it was raining full sideways. It was Forrest Gump style raining. Mm. Uh, I saw numerous. It was also uh, garbage day. Oh, so God. <laughs> it was windy. It was so windy that garbage cans were just everywhere. Oh, flying boy. everywhere. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Yeah. So, um. That's why, I, and we got such a long episode, so I'm roomy, Gavin's roomy, roomy. and uh, I have no internet. I'm trying to make this work here. We're, that's why we don't have any calls today, but we do yeah. have calls, but it, I, I, I don't think that that doesn't mean I need you to call in still. <laughs> I really need you to call in, okay? Yeah. I'm begging you because um, I can't think of anything to talk because my Spoleto brain is still... Spoleto. Uh, it's shattered. It's... it's, it's, it's Pure yeah. mush. And so, I'm doing uh, this. Anyway, Gav. Yeah. I'm also adding the chaos. I forgot my laptop charger, but I had enough juice to get through editing. So, oh my God, I've never this done that. The, in the, the multiple years we've done remote work, I've never done that. So these are the lengths we're going to yes. through for you people. So terrifying. please call in. Please. Anyway, Gavin, I hope you win. Yes. Have a good weekend. Say hi to all, all our coworkers there for me and, and just take it out. Okay. Let's Will end do. mercifully end this podcast. <laughs> well, folks, thanks for listening. We love our listeners and we want you to show us your appreciation by leaving us a review on iTunes or a voicemail like AT was talking about at 803-563-7169. You can also stay up to date with the latest news on SCETV.org and SouthCarolinaPublicRadio.org. And don't forget to support your local newspapers. For the South Carolina lead, I'm Gavin Jackson. Be well, South Carolina. <laughs> Terror. Okay.